This is the Dallas Morning News. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everybody. Welcome into Sports Day Insider presented by the Dallas Morning News. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by my old pals, Evan Grant and David Moore. Fellas, how was your Thanksgiving? I had a wonderful time. But I, I do have a question. Even though this is a uh, an audio medium, not a visual one, are you in witness protection somewhere? Yeah. I know our I know our listeners can't see you, but so why are you talking about it, David? <laughs> because I'm trying to. It's a theater of the mind, Kevin. We're trying you to know. we're trying to create There's, images here. It's a, the, if it's a theater of the mind, it's a very small one. For you. Let's just, <laughs> well, let's just we have very that. small minds to work with on this. Yes, end. exactly. Uh, well, well, uh, fellas, we're off to a rip roaring start. I had a fine Thanksgiving. Thank you very much. Uh, it was very small. We were we were all gathered here by the fireplace. Um, the unfortunate thing is we don't have a fireplace, so it was just kind of an open flame burning in the house. Um, but uh, it was all good. Small turkey. A lot of sides. I, I I could do. I think I could get rid of the turkey and just go sides. Yeah, I always cut down on the turkey myself. It's mostly it's mostly sides for me. I'm not I'm not a big turkey guy anyway. It's just okay. I, I spent my Thanksgiving with David Moore, as a matter of fact, uh, out there at uh, Jerry World. I'm trying to remember is the first time in what eight years or so, maybe eight nine Boy, years. David, I couldn't tell you. I can't even remember breakfast, much less when I've done <laughs> That's that. That's a good point. Yeah. Most most of the time, I, I've I have been on my way uh, the next day to a, a college football game, uh, which has required uh, quite some uh, jumping through a lot of hoops. Uh, but I won't go into all that. It takes too long, and I, and I usually end up crying when I'm finished talking about it. Um, <laughs> So anyway, so it was uh, it was a great Thanksgiving for everybody. We're all back. It's all good to be here. Uh, so we big, had big announcement the, over Thanksgiving by a uh, key Dallas athlete. Oh, that's right. We did have the big announcement. Uh, yeah, Jack Prescott is going to be uh, a girl daddy. Yes, he is. It's uh, his uh, partner dropped it on uh, Saturday, and then he immediately came back and uh, acknowledged it. Uh, we talked to him uh, earlier this week about it, and he was it, to to say he was beaming was an understatement. Every time he was asked a question about it, he uh, you, you could tell how excited he was, and he did talk about this. Is you know, Dak has talked before. Uh, he's at a place now in his home work balance that he could actually do this now. He could not have imagined doing this earlier in his career. He just wasn't in a place to do it. But now uh, he is he is ready and excited. Well, congratulations to him. You know, as the father of four myself, I can tell you right now, you are never actually ready to be a parent. You just have to jump into the deep end of the pool. Uh, and that's what I, I was. But I was older than Dak. I was 35 before I had any kids. So uh, that's why I'm so much older 
than my children now. They they call me uh, pops. Pops, you know, yeah. Yeah. So you know, why, but yeah. I would think that Dak will be ready for fatherhood. I mean, he's spent his whole career audibling, and isn't that what fatherhood is? <laughs> yes, that is what it is. Uh, no, I think he'll be great. You know, Dak, whatever else you want to say about him, and of course, we hear it all, and certainly David hears it more than the rest of us. Um, whatever else you think about Dak, he is a fine human being. And uh, and I think uh, uh, he's certainly a leader in, in that locker room and on the, in that organization. No one questions any of that. You can question about how accurate he is. You can question whether he'll win the big game. But he is a fine human being, as, as good a man as they've had at quarterback ever. And they've had a lot of good men at quarterback uh, for the Dallas Cowboys. They've had a lot of good quarterbacks, and they've had a lot of good people uh, as quarterbacks. Uh, so that was quite a tradition, and he has certainly upheld that in the bargain. Yeah, to hear the other Cowboys quarterbacks before him, like Roger Staubach and Troy Aikman, what they have to say about Dak, uh, they certainly hold him in, in high esteem. And uh, I, I thought probably of the of his teammates we talked to, Micah Parsons probably had the most heartfelt advice. He said, get a guest room ready because you will need someone in to help you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's what that's the great thing about we, our granddaughter lives eight uh, minutes from us. And the other in-laws live three minutes from our kids. So they have two sets of grandparents within 10 minutes of their house. I'm going to tell you something that is a valuable resource and they are already uh, taking advantage of that. Full advantage our, of it. <laughs> yeah. To our great pleasure. Uh, you know what being so a that, girl dad meant today for me? What's that? Today it meant I got to run by Lou Sterrett and pick up Natalie, who was not a prisoner. She was actually at the Frank Crowley court center doing her. Glad you clarified that. Yeah, we're glad you clarified that before you got much farther into the story. Thank you. Yeah. So I got a text at like 11.15 that she had had a migraine, she hadn't had anything to eat, and she needed caffeine. So during her 45-minute lunch break, I zipped over, and I said, I'll pick you up in the area where prisoners are released, because apparently I have experience in that. Grabbed her, we we had tacos, took her back to the courthouse, and she's over there doing her civic duty as we speak. That's what being a girl dad is all about. Well, it, it helps when you live three minutes from Lou Sterrett, but that's okay. We'll we'll give you points for that. I, that's good. I may live in Lou Sterrett, but let's <laughs> three minutes away is, is good for the listeners. Yes, it is. It was good. That's a good thing. All right, let's move on now and talk about the, the Cowboys week this week. Of course, uh, it's another early week. i got a Thursday game coming up. A lot of stuff going on before that. Uh, and one of the things that happened this week was that Shaq Leonard, the former Indianapolis Colts linebacker, came in for a visit with the Cowboys to see if he would like to play for them and uh, vice versa. Uh, David, I'm already on board saying that I think this would be a really great move not only because uh, he has been a, a tremendous player, uh, even the people in Indianapolis and in the Colts organization will tell you he is one of the greatest linebackers in their history. Uh, he was a three-time first-team uh, All-Pro, second-team All-Pro another year, uh, really a phenomenal track record. He developed some problems in his back that caused some nerve issues in his leg and causing him great pain. He lost a lot of his burst uh, and uh, and probably some speed as well, and that affected his play in time with the Colts. He was not happy with that, and he told them, basically, 
he told everybody that he wasn't happy about it. And I guess the Colts just figured, you know, it's not a good idea to have a guy of this stature just sitting on the sideline because that's what he was going to be doing for the rest of the year. So they released him, and now it's between, apparently, the Cowboys and the Eagles. Uh, first of all, David, let me ask you that. Do you know of anybody else that is in the hunt? Would not exclude anybody, but those are the two teams I've heard the most prominent at this point. The two IT, two teams I know he has scheduled a visit for. I'm not aware of a third at the moment. Uh, he visited with the Cowboys today, went through the physical, had lunch with Jerry Jones. I know there will be consternation among Cowboys fans because they will say, well, how could you let him leave the building? Why didn't you sign him? Why do you let him go to Philadelphia? But my understanding is that uh, Shaq Leonard and his representation informed Dallas and Philadelphia and uh, any other team that might be interested that uh, this wasn't going to be one-stop shopping. He, he, he wanted to go visit with the teams that showed an interest in him make a determination, and then come back maybe as soon as this weekend and, and make a decision on where he'd like to play. Well, of course, you know, uh, we should say, too, the reason the Cowboys would be interested, besides the fact that he's been a very good player, is that Leighton Vander Esch is out for the rest of the season. Uh, and so uh, Damone Clark is is the starter. And you're uncertain about his future, right? Uh, well, absolutely. With Leighton yeah. Vander Esch. And Leighton Vander Esch and uh, Shaquille Leonard were both in that same draft class. They came out the same year. Yeah, you know what? And I think that has always motivated uh, Leonard a little bit, you know, yeah. uh, because uh, Leighton went in the first round, of course, of the Cowboys. I think he was the 19th pick of that mm-hmm. draft. Uh, and then uh, Leonard went in the second round. That's back when we knew him as Darius Leonard. Darius, he yes. told everybody he went by his middle name instead of his first name. Um, took him a while to, to come up with that. Um, and he just uh, he earned the nickname with the Colts of the Maniac. But for the mm-hmm. way he played, the way he forced turnovers, his his hustle, everything about him, you know, is just uh, he's a has been a tremendous player. How much of that is left? I don't know. If you look up, uh, if you go by what Pro Football Focus says, they say that still against the run, he's very good. He's as a matter of fact, uh, the last I checked, he was second only to Marquise Bell in run stop percentage, meaning that when there's an opportunity to stop a run and play, he stops it. Uh, so that is still a weakness for the Cowboys. And, and besides that, uh, I don't know how much he would play. He would probably be a, you know, a two down linebacker at this point. Uh, but also I would have to think he'd be a great locker room presence. Uh, great for, for, for those young linebackers like Damone Clark, uh, and for them to see what it's like to have the kind of commitment that he has had, because, you know, the, the players, uh, in that Colts locker room, we're really sorry to see him go. He was he was very highly revered, very highly revered in the community. He did a lot of things in that community. Just supposed to be a, a terrific guy by all accounts. Yes, there, Evan. There's no question, right, that he'd be an asset for the Cowboys at this point in time because of the injury to Vanderish. My question, though, David, is what's the case for him to take the Cowboys opportunity versus an Eagles opportunity? Whether I think, you know, when it comes down to playing time, when it comes down to money, when it comes down to just opportunity to win a Super Bowl. Well, that's that's what he's going to weigh, right? And, and this is not – I know a lot of times uh, fan bases look at it from what the team needs and just go, well, you got to get this guy. But Shaq Leonard, with where he is, and because he was released when he was, the decision is his. He can sit there and go, no, Philadelphia may be a better fit for me right now than Dallas is. And and that's what he's working through here. You know, he knows 
<clears throat> excuse me, he knows players and coaches on both teams, so he has a familiarity there. Uh, so it's about determining the role, how much he would play, and also him making a determination, okay, which of these teams has a better chance to go deeper into the postseason and, and possibly to the Super Bowl. So uh, he's going to have to work through all that where he's comfortable in his own mind. I, I do say I, I think I think either team would give would would fashion a comparable role for him. Um, the thing is, Dallas is better defensively than Philadelphia. They just had an injury to one of their linebackers with a hamstring. So maybe he would jump in and play a little bit more there initially. Um, but, you know, the complexion can change real quick. I mean, Philly has a two-game lead on Dallas right now. In two weeks, they could be tied. And you look at things completely differently. So you you factor that into the decision, or he will, but you can't give it too much weight. I think it's about the fit, where you think you can have the most impact. And let's be honest here, he's he's in a situation where he's just going to finish out a year and then go back on the free agent market. So while you want to align yourself with the team that wins it, you also want to align yourself with, well, if I don't come back on this team, you know, how do I increase my market value going into the offseason when I'm a free agent? So all of that's in consideration. He would look, he gives Dallas something they don't have. He has you have a lot of converted safeties at linebacker right now for Dallas. They're undersized. He actually has the size. He would help them in the run game, which in my mind is still the biggest question they have defensively going into the postseason. And he has a very high he forces a lot of turnovers, forces a lot of fumbles, gets interceptions. Um, he he fits that prototype that uh, this Cowboys team is so good at doing. Kevin, can I give you a layup? Yes, sir. Go ahead. If you're Shaq Leonard, and I know, I I think I know where you stand on this. If you're Shaq Leonard and you visit Jerry Jones one day, and Howie Roseman the next, who's going to make the more persuasive argument for you? Well, look, Howie Roseman has a reputation across the league, not just against Jerry Jones, but against everybody. I, I, he's my favorite GM in, in football. I mean, he, he makes moves, you know, and, and, he, and he, he doesn't make moves like the Rams did where they disassembled a Super Bowl team uh, and then they, they had nothing to show for it after that. You know, it's, it seems like Roseman is always making really good trades. You know, the A.J. Brown trade, I think, in a lot of ways helped make, you know, uh, Jalen Hurts. So – it's things like that, and I, that's why, to me, as soon as I would find out that the Eagles want to do this, then that's why the Cowboys should want to do it. You know, because you don't want to do anything that would that would make the Eagles better, right? You don't want to allow them to do anything to make themselves better. Uh, and Jerry Jones even kind of said that when I asked him after the game the other day, "Are are you worried about the fact that the the fact that the Eagles are interested in him?" And he said, "Yeah, I have a lot of respect for for the decisions that they make." Uh, and I was glad to see Jerry concede that. So, and why wouldn't uh, Shaq Leonard play that? Shaq Leonard knows that dynamics going on. Sure. These are the two teams he's talking to. He knows each one wants to keep him away from the other if they have any genuine interest. So it's just going to drive up what he's going to get. On that yeah, front, though, David, you pointed out the Cowboys still have more cap room left, right? A lot more cap room. I believe Philadelphia is right around two point four million under the cap. Dallas is about five times that amount. So uh, now they can, you can always 
cut a player, you can restructure a contract real quick to get some more money. But that's a lot of moving parts to do in season uh, just to get a, a deal done like immediately. So Dallas Dallas has the latitude, and that's something Dallas will have to consider. Um, you know, mentioned earlier, you don't know if Leighton Van Der Esch is going to be back next year. I mean, you get him in here, and he's a good fit, then you talk about going forward with him. But also remember, this is a draft and develop team primarily, and overshone their third-round pick, who they were very high on, will be coming back next year, and that's the role that he is slated to play. So, but all of that being said, I think you can argue it makes more sense for Dallas to pay beyond what it would otherwise just to ensure he doesn't go to your primary rival in the division. Yeah, no question about that. All right, let's move over now and talk a little bit about a guy who set an NFL record uh, Thursday. Just an unbelievable thing to watch that all happen, uh, to watch Deron Bland uh, pick off another pass and and take it back to the house. It's just un- unbelievable to watch him do this. As as he, I guess, was describing it the other day, he said he saw the quarterback, you know, and, and he, he thought, well, okay, I got past him. Oh, there's another guy. And he sidesteps that guy as well. I mean, the, the guy has caught seven passes this year, and, and he's got five touchdowns. I mean, that is that's a pretty great percentage. You know, he obviously knows what to do with the ball after he catches it. He has as many touchdowns as the person that Taylor Swift is dating this season. <laughs> yeah, Jason Kel- our, uh, Kelsey's not going to Travis Kelsey's not yeah. going to make very happy about that either. You know, he uh, has more touchdowns than Devontae uh, Adams, yeah, uh, one of the better receivers in the league. I mean, he's the, this is just staggering what he's done. Again, six games left in the regular season. He's already set an NFL record. No player in history has ever returned five interceptions in one season for touchdowns until Deron Bland did. Um, and this last, he broke the record in style, right? That was a very, very impressive return, that 63-yard return. Some of his others were, were not to minimize them because this happens so infrequently, but would you know jump around and there's no one out on that side and, it, and it's pretty easy to get in. There was nothing easy about this interception return for a touchdown. I like what Al Harris said about him, uh, in which when he was looking for a uh, cornerback in particular, he likes the, a guy who has the instincts to break on that outside route like that. Uh, and certainly I would bet it seems like most of these have been that. Now, there have been a couple yep. that weren't. Uh, there were kind of a crossing patterns, uh, but, but most of them are that you almost get the sense that he's baiting quarterbacks a little bit. He's he's hanging back just enough to give that quarterback the idea that this this uh, route is open. And then uh, he has tremendous speed. I don't know that he's as fast as Trayvon Diggs, but he's no. plenty fast. Uh, he is. And, and C.D. Lamb this week was talking about you can see him baiting the quarterbacks. Uh, you can see him. Uh, and, and you know, CD Lamb just started smiling about it. So, you know, we we saw that in training camp. We he was doing that to us. Uh, you think there's no way he can get there, and uh, and he does. And you would still think at this point, are you going to continue to test him? Um, but we talk about going forward with him and Trayvon Diggs on the other side coming back. Trayvon Diggs, who who equaled a, a record that had stood for that no one had reached in 40 years in the NFL a couple of years ago with 11 interceptions. And now you have Deron Bland. Deron Bland has 12 since coming into the league last year as a rookie. 
And he spent, he didn't even start early in the season and, and didn't really move into a prominent role until Jordan Lewis went down at slot corner. Uh, he has 12 interceptions since entering the league as a rookie last year. So, so these are two of the best playmakers at the position in the league, both less than 25 years old. Uh, it sets up for the Cowboys secondary really well. And the other thing, real quickly on Bland, we're talking about his interceptions. Look at his completion percentage that quarterbacks have against him. He's one of the top-rated guys in the league in that department. So this isn't a case where you often heard with Diggs of, well, he takes some risk, but he also gives up some big plays because he gambles a little too much, and he's hit or miss on that. There's no hit or miss with uh, with Deron Bland. He either makes the interception or he, he keeps the play in front of him and doesn't give up a lot. Yeah, and I know that you think, and I think probably so too, that he should be in the running for Defensive Player of the Year, shouldn't he? Yeah, you know, this is interesting um, that the Cowboys, the season started and uh, Micah Parsons, rightfully so, was in the discussion for Defensive Player of the Year, still remains in that discussion. But with this performance, uh, Bland has thrust himself into the conversation. It's interesting because right now in the league, there are only five active players who have won Defensive Player of the Year award. And one of them is in a Cowboys uniform, and that's Stephen Gilmore, the other corner. But but the thing that's interesting here was Gilmore is the only cornerback in the last 12 years to win Defensive Player of the Year. And you go back 29 years, there are only f- four secondary players in the last 29 years who have won the award. By and large, it goes to pass rushers. Um, but, you know, as as Gilmore was saying, Parsons and Bland are both deserving. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. And look, there's the chance neither one could win it, right? Because uh, Watts having an outstanding season in Pittsburgh. There's some other guys having some really, really good seasons. Miles Garrett in Cleveland. But these two are in the conversation and in the top five of the conversation. Well, they should be, you know. And, and I would think that, to me, when you're on defense and you're scoring points, uh, you know, you, yeah. When you've scored 30 points this year, uh, that's pretty good. Uh, you know, and and you're not only stopping things on your end, you're you're making plays for the offense. So, well, that's why it, right or wrong, that's why it tilts toward the pass rusher, right? Because usually uh, a defensive pass rusher is going to win the award. He's going to have between 15 to 18 sacks, something like that. You're not going to have a corner with 15 to 18 interceptions. You know, a good year for a corner is seven receptions, which is where Deron Bland is right now. Uh, and that's not even counting the touchdown returns on them. So uh, that's why it always tilts toward that. But, I, again, I do find it interesting because, you know, you talk to coaches, and, and I think everybody accepts there are two premium blue-chip precisions defensively, and it's pass rusher and corner. Every defense, every coordinator tells you that's what you need to build a good defense. And corners are completely overlooked in the defensive player of the year conversation because you can be – Deion Sanders is an example. He didn't have great stats as far as interceptions, right? But no one threw on his side. He took away a, a quarter of the field or a half of the field. So uh, it's preventing numbers, whereas – at least pass rushers are in a position to kind of accrue some numbers, which is why it leans in that direction. But all of that being said, 
five interception returns for a touchdown in a season kind of upsets that whole thinking and thrusts you into the conversation. Yeah, as well it should. Before we get out of the Cowboys segment, we ought to talk about the game on Thursday. They're playing Seattle, a team uh, struggling to to make the playoffs. They're still a, a pretty good team. Uh, this will be a, a, a lot better test than the Cowboys have seen in the last few weeks. Uh, so, David, uh, what separates uh, the the Cowboys from the, the Seahawks at this point? Well, Dallas is a more explosive offense uh, with this latest surge. Uh they are the leading scoring team in the league. Everyone uh, I know is enamored and rightfully so with what Miami's been doing this year and how creative they are. Uh, Dallas now averages more points than Miami has this season. Uh, Dak Prescott is playing at the uh, arguably the best level over an extended stretch, and he's played in his career. So I would say the offense is more explosive uh, than Seattle's for sure. Um, defensively, Dallas forces more turnovers, has more playmakers on the defensive side of the ball. Uh, Seattle has a pretty good defense, but they've struggled here over the last couple of weeks. And, um, you know, two weeks ago, this game looked a little bit tougher than what it did now because they've lost these last two games and have, have it looked particularly good. But the other side of that is Seattle's kind of in the big middle now as far as you know, postseason competition for a wild card spot, and they can't afford to lose many more conference games and still have the tiebreakers they need to get into the postseason. So they're getting to the stage where they really are, you hate to say desperate yet, but uh, if they don't reverse how they're playing soon, they're going to be on the outside looking in when the playoffs come around. So Whereas Dallas is is comfortably in the playoffs, they will make the playoffs. Uh, but they they're they're striving to get higher. But they know even if they stumble along this way in the stretch run, they're still going to be a playoff team. Seattle doesn't know that. Yeah, no, that's that's the point. That is the point to make. All right, so that's going to do it for the Cowboys segment of our podcast. We're going to move over now and talk about the Rangers. The we got the. Uh, uh, Winter meetings coming up here. Evan, tell us about the meetings, when, where, how, who, why. Well, there's some meetings, and they have them in a big hotel, and a bunch of people show up, and they talk about trades and free agents. that good enough? This is why we – airplane three. Is this what you're yeah. doing? Yeah, this is this is why we hire Evan. It's for these kind of answers. The uh, so they're in Nashville this year, Kevin, which means they're at the Opryland, uh, the Gaylord Opryland, which means there's a lot of Christmas lights. So that'll be exciting. Um, I don't think that the Rangers are going to be quite the participant that they've been the last two winners. I just don't see them spending the kind of money they have, and we've talked about this. Uh, this is a team that's invested eight hundred and fifty million dollars in long-term deals over the last two winners. They have a World Series to 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 thank for it or to show for it. Um, their next step is a dynasty, and they're still a couple pieces away from that. I think the question that the Rangers have to entertain is, while they don't need to go out and spend hundreds of millions of dollars this year, they probably need to go out and get a middle-of-the-rotation middle type starter, at least one, they need a couple of bullpen arms, and they might need a DH. And that's still going to cost you in the range of 
40 to $50 million uh, for this year. And so the question is going to be, will Ray Davis ultimately be willing to jack his payroll up above $250 million for 2024, which would, for the second consecutive year, uh, invoke the collective, the uh, competitive balance tax, the CBT, uh, and would also put him in a higher tax bracket on the CBT where he'd go from, I think he paid 20% of his overage this year for about a $1.7 million penalty. Next year, if you go to $250 million, you're paying 32% on about $13 million. So you're about tripling that. And for every dollar you go above that, you'd be paying another 30% in tax. So it, it's a question I think Ray Davis has got to answer. It's complicated more by the fact that there's the situation with the RSN, with Bally and uh, Diamond Sports remains unsettled at best. Uh, I think that there's possibility the Rangers could end up better off if Bally or Diamond rejects their rights and the Rangers go direct to consumer on streaming. I think they can get to more, more homes. I think it's going to be more work and it's less guaranteed money, but I think they can ultimately end up pocketing more money but these are decisions that Ray Davis has got to make before he gets that money in hand. They don't have to add, though, just by free agency. They can make a trade uh, to shore up some of those positions that you talked about in the rotation uh, among the relievers and even a DH. Although I, I would expect probably that, that DH thing is going to end up being just a shared position by several players. But, uh, you know, there there's still those possibilities looming out there. I, I think those possibilities exist, but now if you're talking about a trade, the tradable guys that would potentially bring you a pitcher are Leody Tavares, uh, Nathaniel Lowe, and potentially Ezekiel Duran. Um, I think Duran would probably have to be packaged with somebody to to get a pitcher. Um, and if you do that, certainly the, the Rangers could – move Wyatt Langford up to the big leagues and you'd have a rookie in left field and then a rookie in center field in, in Evan Carter. Um, you still don't have the DH situation solved and you're, you're without Leody Tavares. If you trade Nathaniel Lowe, now you've opened up first base as a situation that's going to have to be solved. So there are issues with, with trading guys. And I think the other, the other part of that is if you do trade one of these guys, what exactly are you going to get back in terms of a starting pitcher? You know, they are so valuable to clubs that going out and trading for a controllable starting pitcher or an established starting pitcher, even with a year left of control, the asking price is ridiculously high. And so I don't know if the Rangers are going to consider that to be a prudent um, prudent way to, to fill these, these, these roster holes. Well, let's take, for instance, Corbin Burns. We've talked about that before in Milwaukee. What would what would the Brewers want for him? He's got this year left. That's it, uh, or 2024, and then he's going to be a free agent after that. Yeah, and I, I you know, I think the same exists for for Shane Bieber. There have been some teams talking about Shane Bieber with with Cleveland, um, and, and I don't have I don't have answers for that. But Burns is both these guys are. Well, Bieber's one of Cy Young. I. I I think Burns has too. I, I'm, I'm drawing a blank uh, right this minute. I don't, I don't think so about Burns, but go but ahead. They've both been in uh, on the medal stand for Cy Young Awards. You're talking about elite-level pitchers. So if you're talking about trading for one of those guys, you're probably talking about 
a, a a young major league player and multiple prospects to go along with it. So take your pick of Tavares or Lowe plus two pretty good prospects to try and get a year for one of those two guys. Yeah, I, I don't have any problem with trading Tavares. Uh, I, I like him all right. I, I think that he played as, he, as well last year as he's going to play. I think we, we see him up, and then we see him down. And I, I just you just have the feeling that that's the player that he is. Um, but he did play well. He's, I think, 25 years old. He has some some real appeal for, I would think, a lot of teams. Uh, and, and I do think that Evan Carter – obviously can play center field and that opens up a spot for Wyatt Langford and left. Of course, you know, as we talked about before, you still have to figure out, you know, if Evan Carter's going to continue to have a problem against left-handed hitters, it's a very small yep. sample size, but he did struggle uh, against left-handers. You could just tell he looked different uh, than he did against right-handers. He looks very confident against right-handers against left-handers. The swing is a little bit uh, long and, uh, and he's a, he just seems to, be fooled a little bit more often. So uh, those are things to consider. They've got to weigh those things, but I just feel like that, that Chris Young uh, is the type of general manager. I mean, if there was ever going to be a general manager who say that says, Oh yeah, I, th- I think we're going to be, I think we're going to be fine. That's not who he is. Uh, looking back on it now, that's why I'm a little surprised. He was willing just to sit with that bullpen going into last season uh, because everybody knew that there was going to be a struggle. For that bullpen, right? Well, and, but I, I don't I think, think they went into last. They didn't go into last season saying, oh, "We'll just we're okay with this bullpen." They went into last season with the idea, "Hey, we really needed to address our rotation, and we spent all our money on the rotation. And if there's an area that you need to fill during the regular season, it's easier to try and fill bullpen spots than any other place." And they went out and did that with with Araldis Chapman and and with Chris Stratton. Um, I do think the, the one thing the Rangers have done a really good job over the past five years of plumbing the middle of the starting pitcher market. Uh, those contracts that they got, Mike Miner, Kyle Gibson, Lance Lennon, all of those deals were really good deals. And they were all in the 8 to $10 million range and fairly short-term deals at that point. I think the market has about doubled for that kind of pitcher. I think if you're asking for a middle-tier starting pitcher, you're talking about spending 16 to $18 million and looking at at least two years on that. And I think the reporting that you and I have done has been that the Rangers feel like there's somewhere between 10 and $20 million to play with on this payroll. So you run into this. If you go out and acquire that kind of free agent, do you, A, go back to Ray Davis and say, okay, we need another piece, and will that be will that be convincing enough? Or do you have to lower your sights on what you add as a starter so that you have enough money to go out and add a reliever? Yeah. Yeah, it's certainly a conundrum. I think the first thing they really have to fix is the bullpen. I mean, I, I, I do think that the guys came back. Obviously, Jose LeClerc came back and pitched very well. Uh, the second half of the season, Josh Spores was a revelation at the end of the season, getting seven outs in, in, in game five of the world's the clinching game of the World Series was a tremendous feat, uh, you know, especially to get a guy that had to do that who had not done that before. I, I think that will go down as one of the, you know, greatest pitching feats of the last 20 years uh, to, for a guy to do something like that. 
in that kind of situation uh, and uh, with the World Series on the line. But you're looking, you are looking right now at a rotation that's got a 39 year old Max Scherzer at the front, um, an injury prone Nathan Nivaldi, um, uh, John Gray, um, Dane Dunning, and um, who am I missing right now? I'm not sure. I wasn't listening. Yeah. Oh, good, Kevin. I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, but I Any mean, they're to work that out. You have. Well, the, there's no question. They they have. They've got a bunch of competition for four and five. They don't have much competition yeah. for three. Oh, I, I I left and Andrew Heaney out. I left Andrew Heaney yeah. out. So I, there's a lot of injury history there, and you've got to have more depth, you know, and, and this team went into last year thinking, my God, we've added so much depth in the starting rotation. And we still saw as this season, as the past season uh, transpired, that they basically ran out of starting pitching, you know? So uh, I, they need to add another starting pitcher at a minimum. Uh, That's the one thing that, that is the one thing, Kevin, that I would say about this team that, as well as everything went this year, and when you win the World Series, everything has gone about as good as you could hope. The one area where I think the Rangers were somewhat flawed this year is the inability to develop starting pitching. They needed some of those young starting pitchers to come up through the minor leagues and be ready to contribute at the big league level, and I think you're still looking at at least a year away for those guys. Well, that's only been an issue now for what uh, thirty-five years. <laughs> been a minute, though. So, it, it's been yeah. an issue for the entire history of the organization. But I'm saying, based yeah. on this clock and how they time this thing out, this is the area that's still behind on uh, everything else. No, no, no question about that. Uh, by the way, Corbin Burns did win in 2021, but that was so long ago. I, you know, that's why we forgot. Two years ago, the man won the. Yeah. All right. We're going to move on now from our Rangers segment and over into colleges because Evan Grant is dying to talk about this coaching search in College Station in which they kind of apparently maybe might have offered it to uh, one guy and he might have even accepted it. And then there was such a backlash against him that he withdrew and they huddled up again, and they came up with another coach. Kevin, I'm not dying to talk about it. I am dying to hear your take on it because, I mean, you've got great, great institutional knowledge of A&M and the way things operate in, at the college level here, and it's just amazing to me that they would have basically agreed with Mike Stoops and then had bad backlash from a couple of boosters and said, not so fast. Uh, we'll go in a different direction. And then they got the they got Mike Elko from Duke, and I'm just not sure. Well, Duke has produced one good football coach, and Steve Spurrier. We'll we'll see if Elko is on the same on the same level. Well, if they if it really had been Mike Stoops, they I understand why they would have been upset. It was Mark Stoops actually. Mark it's Stoops, easy to get those the, those Stoops is mixed up. Uh, I I think I would have been happier for them if they'd hired Bob Stoops. Frankly, uh, I think that Bob still got a little bit left there if he if he really wanted to coach. And could quit coaching in uh, that XFL. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting situation. What happened? Of course, as as everything was going down Saturday night, it looked like Mark Stoops was the guy. And 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 look, he's been the, at Kentucky for eleven years. He's done a nice job. Uh, the last time that A uh, and M hired a football coach from from Kentucky, it went pretty well. 
And so maybe that's what they were thinking. I don't know. Uh, it, it, it just didn't feel like, wow, this after all the people we could have possibly hired, they were talking about Ryan Day at Ohio State. You know, they were talking uh, about, you know, uh, Urban Meyer's name had come up. I don't think that was ever realistic. But uh, these were names that were being bandied about. And and you end up with Mark Stoops, you know, and and, and that was something that didn't go over big, apparently, with them. And I don't know why they didn't get this checked out. I have to believe that there were certain specific boosters who really were not on board with this. Uh, because it wasn't a sexy point. enough hire. Yeah, I think that's yeah, I think that's it. I think that and plus, look, Mike Elko's not a sexy hire, you know. He, he's been a head coach for two years at Duke. Now, of course, he was a defensive but coordinator. He has ties there. Yeah. Yeah. See, it was, was a, a more comfortable hire for them. More people that, were that excited is, about Elko than Stoops. People whether it's just right or not. Yeah. There. People were excited community. about it down there. And I don't really know why. Uh, the, you know, look. He was uh, a comfortable figure, you know. Uh, he fit in, I guess, down there. I don't know. He's a he's a looks like a big bubba, you know. And, and whether that has that factored into it at all, I don't know. But I do know this, and I wrote this last week. Uh, too too often at A and M, the question has always been a cultural fit. Now, look, I realize that they've got a little different vibe going down there at College Station than they do in a lot of other places. But at some point, you just have to hire a good football coach, you know, and, and worry less about the cultural fit because players, when they come there, they're not concerned with all that stuff. They're not learning the Aggie war hymn and they're not standing up and doing all the cheers and knowing all the stuff that's going on with the with the Yale leaders. You know, they don't really care about it. They may like it, but they don't really care about it. They just want to play football. And, and so play football, my, make money. Become an NFL draft pick. Absolutely. And so that's the issue here. It's, it's always been something. You know, if you go way back to the days of, you know, after Bear Bryant left, you know, they were trying to hire Frank Leahy. He just uh, retired at Notre Dame. Didn't work out. They got Bear Bryant. That's a pretty great hire. And then after he left, it was just a mess. You know, they thought they were going to get Frank Leahy at, the, at one point. There was Red Sanders from UCLA, Duffy Doherty from Michigan State, all of these these were national names. And at one time or another, all of those guys thought that they were getting the job. So what does that tell you about what was going on at AM in 1959? So it, it's a little bit of the same thing, I think, now that there are we, – we've talked about incessantly at Texas about the politics that you have to maneuver to be the head coach there and how you really need to be a CEO. And that's why it worked out so well for Mac Brown because of all things – that's what he was and is a CEO, uh, much more so than any other head coach I've ever known. So in college football. So we've always talked about Texas and how hard it is for them to find the right guy. Uh, it, it seems to me that you can make that same case at Texas A&M. I mean, really. I think the, it, I think the difference, might, I think the difference is that Texas, you know, considers itself an elite job and so does A&M. I think, though, that Texas is an elite job, and I'm not so sure A&M is. I, I think A&M well, has, may have spent too much time. The boosters at A&M may think, I don't know how to say this other than bluntly, but they may think too highly of themselves compared to the college landscape that they're in. And, and at Certainly, least at UT, look, the, palace, the palace intrigue 
is before the job is offered, not after a job is offered someone, and then it all comes to the surface. Well, they've made some messes. You know, that Texas, you know, there was the, the case when uh, Steve Sarkeesian was hired. Uh, that was not Chris Del Conte's choice. His choice was Sonny Dykes. He was going to hire Sonny Dykes. And when he told somebody that, they said, no, you're not. You know, and that was the end of that. And they ended up with, with Steve Sarkeesian instead. You know, let me just say this. The athletic director is not making the hire at these places. You know, yeah. uh, these these hires are being made by people on the board of regents. Uh, you know, Kevin L. Tyth is the one who made the hire of Steve Sarkeesian. You know, I'm not sure who made the hire here at A&M yet. Uh, we're, we're still trying to find all that kind of information out. Uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Tony Busby had a big role in this kind of thing, because that's that's the kind of role he has at, at A&M. And he certainly has uh, kind of tried to develop that kind of persona. So we'll see going forward how it works out. I, I think that, you know, that uh, that he'll be fine. Uh, Mike Elko will be fine at A&M uh, because he's got a lot of talent and if he just doesn't screw it up. Right. If he can recruit, uh, I don't know what he's going to do with his staff. Uh, Elijah Robinson, who was the interim coach, will remain and apparently will be the defensive coordinator. And I would assume kind of more or less in, in name only because that's what Mike Elko is, is a defensive coordinator. Well, offensive coordinator is the key hire for him, right? Well, it is. To, that's, yes. that's where this is, whether it's going to work or not immediately, you would think, is who he brings in on his staff on the offensive side. Well, and that's been the problem at A&M because, uh, and, th- and we've written about this uh, uh, several times, is that Jimbo Fisher had an offense that w- with a playbook about four inches thick. And uh, and it was asked about it and said, why don't you dumb this down a little bit? And his response was, I'm preparing, <coughs> excuse me, I'm preparing players for the NFL. Well, you're supposed to be winning football games. Uh, and and that's not what the A&M did under him. He brings in Bobby Petrino, whatever you want to say about him as a head coach, he's a terrific offensive mind. But the problem with that was, even though he was calling the plays, he was still running Jimbo's offense. It was still very complicated, and it was still difficult for these quarterbacks to run. And yes, news today that he may be losing Bobby Petrino as well because he's being vetted as a potential offensive coordinator at Arkansas. I don't know how Arkansas will ever – investigate Bobby Petrino, whether or not he would be a good fit for them. Um, it'd be. <laughs> How crazy is that? He would go back to Arkansas. What, and what does that tell you right there? Cause Sam Pittman has got one foot out the door. I mean, and, and not because he's trying to, it's because they're pushing him out the door. Uh, Hunter, you're made the promise that they would bring him back. And I got to tell you, uh, my Arkansas connections tell me that is not, uh, uh, that was not a popular move to say that he was coming back for another year. Uh, it's just, it, it's kind of gone from a pretty good situation there with him and he was very well liked and he was winning some games to where they're now terrible. Uh, and their offense is, is unbelievably bad. I Supposedly, just find, it, I just ahead, find it reprehensible that you would, that you would consider bringing Bobby Petrino back to Arkansas. I just, he is extremely popular with that fan base. They, uh, despite everything that happened there with the motorcycle and the, and the, the woman that was on his staff and all the rest of that stuff, uh, that he is, he, he, uh, maybe I should have said it that way. Uh, at any rate, Bobby Petrino is very well liked because that's the last time they liked their offense. Well, it's the last time they won. It's the last yeah, time well, they won. He's, he's a terrific offensive mind. So, uh, yeah, I, I would have, I would guess that uh, that Michael probably bring in his own offensive coordinator. Who that will be, I don't know. But that's going to be a really a key hire for him because that's obviously not his side of the ball. It is not uh, common now. 
to hire head coaches who are defensive coordinators. That is that has become kind of a rare thing. That used to be what everybody did, and that's not so anymore. So now that becomes really an issue because their defense was good, very good under Elko when he was there, and it's been okay the last couple of years. Um, I would expect that's a lot easier to fix than it will be that offense. But he will have Connor Wegman coming back next year as his quarterback, and, he, and that, that kid has a lot of talent. I think he's going to be really good. All right, before we get out of this whole thing, we need to talk really quickly as we're taping this on Tuesday. It's before the uh, uh, college football playoff rankings come out. It's the next to last set of rankings, and Texas uh, going into this was sitting seventh. Uh, could they move up? Yes, I think they, they could and will uh, as we talk about this. Uh, of course, a lot depends on what happens. Everything depends on what happens Saturday in the Big 12 title game when they play Oklahoma State. I would expect they will beat Oklahoma State pretty handily. They they really put everything together against Texas Tech. I think that Oklahoma State and Texas Tech are very uh, comparable teams at this point. Um, what really will matter is what happens between Louisville and Florida State in the ACC championship game. Uh, obviously, what uh, Georgia and Alabama do. Uh, and then Washington and Oregon. Uh, all those games will decide and they will drop people. How far they drop will be a real issue. I would say at this point, the Texas chances of making the college football playoff are up to about 50-50. I would have said before they had about a 40% chance. But I, I do think now because Florida State lost its starting quarterback that they're susceptible to Louisville, even though Louisville just lost. Uh, so we'll see if that they can pull that off. Obviously, uh, Things can happen differently if uh, if Alabama were to upset Georgia. I don't really see that happening. Um, I do think that that Alabama kind of showed itself again. They needed a miracle play, fourth and goal from the 31, and they throw a ball to the back of the end zone, and it's a touchdown. Just unbelievable. It was Just an unbelievable, unbelievable finish. You've got I, 16 guys in the end zone, and you can't cover the one guy in the back of the end zone to take that play away. Unbelievable. And, but, I mean, it was an absolutely perfect throw by Milrow, too, who really had oh, – I right. didn't think had played all that well. You didn't think it was that good? The the game or the play? The throw. Oh, the throw was fabulous. Yeah. But, but the thing is, you've got to cover the guy. You've got to right. get back there and get in front of him. And that that's the thing. It's, it, you, you're, you're, you're rushing three guys. One guy was, wasn't even rushing. He was just standing there, I guess, waiting to see what Milrow was going to do, which – was the thing to do, but my gosh, that meant you had eight guys covering five guys. There, look, eight guys covering five guys, and you still let that happen. This was Just retribution for the kick six. That, that, that's yes, all it, it was. was. <laughs> yes, I, it was. I don't, unless Georgia loses to Alabama and you don't see McConkie and you don't see uh, Brock Bowers, I don't see how Georgia falls out of the top four. I just don't see No, it. I don't either. I don't either, and I don't know. You know, everybody's talked about how well Texas went over Alabama the second game of the season in Tuscaloosa. It doesn't matter as much anymore because Milrose playing so great, and he is. But you, we just saw Alabama struggle against a pretty bad Auburn team. Uh, now, I know that's a big rivalry game, and we can talk about that. But still, this point of the season, you should be putting away a team like that. Uh, that's Texas what has, Texas had to brew. Texas has the best, but it's the best win on the on, on, on anybody's schedule. Yes, it is, and 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 I and you asked me this question a couple of weeks ago: Is Texas really one of the four best teams? Yeah. I I would have said a couple of weeks ago, no. But I but after they played the other day, they got the running game back together. They held Texas Tech to seven points. 
They scored 57 points. Uh, they they scored 70. Good. They should have scored 70 in that game. I mean, they well, kicked four field goals in the first half for crying out loud. They did. And, and, and I, I think to me, it's, it's too simple to say, but it's everything about Quinn Ewers. If Quinn Ewers is really on and playing well, then Texas has a chance to beat anybody because they have a good uh, front four and they, they will stop a running game. Uh, they will give up some uh, some uh, passing yards as well on occasion. But they did they did a great job against Texas Tech, so uh, we'll see. The other thing that was amazing right. was that Xavier Worthy got carried off the field about four times and then just kept coming back every two minutes and making like long catches. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous on that level, but he's done it the past two weeks, so we'll see what happens this week against Oklahoma State. It's like James. It's like uh, James Brown going off, isn't it? When you know they would do that deal where they walk out there and they put the cape over him, and then he would kind of uh, struggle off, the field and then he'd come back and sing another song. You know, I mean, they, like they that. took him to the locker room like not being able to put weight on one foot, and the next thing I know, he's out there making a thirty-yard catch. I think they were they were back there checking on things, but I, I'm not sure what they were checking on. But it, I, he is uncoverable. You know, when you uh, he's not always going to run the right route, and he doesn't always have the best hands but you cannot cover him. And that's another reason why that Texas has always got a chance to beat somebody. All right. That's going to do it for our, our end this, uh, this week of the sports day insider podcast. We appreciate you coming back. We'll be back next week to talk about where they are at that point. Uh, as far as Texas in the uh, CFP, if they've still got a shot at that point, uh, because of the rankings, we may be taping it before those are out. Maybe we'll wait just for that, just so we can find out. And we'll also find you know, the out the rankings come out are. next Sunday, Kevin, don't they? Well, that's right. They do come out Sunday. I'm 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 all off. You're right. So we will know by the time we're yes. So that's and I'll cool. be in Nashville at the winter meetings. I'll describe all the lights, every we, one of them. We, that'll be great. That'll be super. <laughs> we have so to before we, before we get out of here. We have to give a big thanks to today's sub producer Julie Fisk. Thank you, Julie, for helping us out. Julie and her cat. Uh, it was all great. We, we enjoyed that. That was a lot of fun watching that. So from everybody in here to everybody out there, thanks, and we'll see you next time. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.